If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, we're going to try and cover three topics if we have time. Where where are you going to begin? So I think we've got to start with probably the most extraordinary um, and, and in some ways depressing article I've read for a long, long time. It was a piece written a few days ago by Alistair Heath in The Telegraph, and it's simply headline, nobody wants to confront the truth. Britain is becoming a poor country. And with these excessively high taxes, um, with no public services functioning as they should, um, he really asked the, the question, um, uh, are we as a country with so much debt, um, with an aging population, with a third of the population now living on their own, um, with um, fewer young people proportionately. And that, that means, therefore, sort of less people going into the workforce, but a, a lot older, a lot of older people with, you know, all kinds of health and social care demands at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. He asked a really big question, which is, are we as a country gradually going the way of Argentina. And what he means by that is, of course, for the early 20th century, uh, really up to the late 1950s, um, Argentina was one of the richest nations, one of the most prosperous nations um, in the world. And for many years, um, it was in its own way more prosperous in places than many of the European powers. But then it got into the sort of deep water that, that we are potentially in, and it fell off a precipice, and it's never really recovered. It doesn't have sound money. It oscillates, oscillates between very, very strange governments and regimes. Um, and Alistair also points out that on current trends, um, if we're not careful, we as a country are going to be overtaken uh, in terms of GDP per capita by Poland in about 12 years. Uh, now, the article is full of the usual... And, and so, sooner than that, one reads, I think it was another right. article, Heath Arsene, there won't be one uh, American state which actually has a lower uh, GDP per capita. Exactly. So, you know, uh, are we a sort of Argentina in the wake, in, 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 in the making? Um, and are we, uh, for a historically very prosperous uh, Western nation on the verge of, of of being in seriously deep water where the water is over our heads and really no one in any of the major political parties, be they Labour or Conservative, uh, are, are really able to come up with solutions. Mm. And, and in, in these terms, I think this crisis could well be uh, much more serious than the 1970s. 
Yes, there were lots of strikes in the 1970s and there was inflation, but I don't remember, and, and, and you know, for a few weeks you couldn't bury the dead and there was some refuse, but I don't ever remember living in a country when I was young where most people, most of the time, couldn't even get an ambulance or or yes. or, or there was a sort of sense of decline in in basic law and order, you know, the, the yes. crime fallout rate being so parlous. So this article raises serious questions for me, Simon. I don't know whether you've read it, but there's also uh, out today, I think, uh, the Centre for Policy Studies um, have brought out a paper uh, saying politicians have a moral duty to support growth. And it, it, it goes through many of the same um, things. And surely one of the problems is we don't seem to have politicians who talk about not just growth, but about where the wealth comes from that pays the taxes, that supports the state and the debt that the state has. I mean, I mean, I know one doesn't want to bring up the name of Kwarteng and Trust to some extent, but that's the last time I've heard any politicians talking about the importance of ensuring that, you know, we have a properly functioning capitalist economy but that's almost a dirty word now it, it, there was none of that stuff about about growth in any of the um uh, the aims that rishi sunak came out with at the beginning of the year i agree and and uh, for me i mean i have friends in i have quite a few friends in the conservative party and i've got quite a number of friends in the labor party and my friends in the labor i have a very good friend who was actually a parliamentary candidate at the last election uh, I have a friend who was um, a very senior official in number 10 during the Blair years. What I find so terrifying and shocking, given that the Conservatives have been in power for, for, near, you know, for, for over 12 years, um, is that they tell me that the Labour Party are ill-equipped when it comes to vision or policy solutions. Um, that's so different from 1997, when you felt that when New Labour came into power, not only did they have an agenda, um, yeah. take an immediate, you know, they took a penny off income tax immediately, they gave the Bank of England independence, they introduced tuition fees, you know, they did lots of things. Um, uh, and also, you know, they did lots of things in terms of gender and racial equality. So we had that feeling of the, the cool Britannia years. Mm. It was a coherent sort of liberal in the, in the Western tradition sense um, agenda. Um, I think the shadow Secretary of State for Health, Wes Streeting, is very, very impressive um, and is actually saying many of the right things when he says not necessarily pouring more money into the NHS is the wise thing to do. We need to modernise and reform. I think that's wise. But do I feel that the Labour team had the sort of vision and coherency that Wes Streeting has in the other briefs? No, I don't. So I am afraid that we have a political elite um, that increasingly are being overwhelmed by this sense of crisis. And behind the scenes, however skillful at rhetoric Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer may be, I think a lot of their officials or their advisors really are increasingly scrabbling around with the question, what on earth can we do? And I find that really frightening, Simon. Mm. Well, Tim, um, I know you're feeling under the weather, so we, we won't we won't um, continue this. We go on to another topic, though it had, actually has a relevance to to this. So I'll just give you a chance to to pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Nietzsche Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm talking to Professor Tim Evans. So, Tim, what's your second topic of the week, please? This is, this is going to be one so, of those weeks when even your optimism is going to have trouble shining through, I feel. Exactly. So uh, my second topic is there is now very, very clear evidence that the ultra-rich are leaving Britain and that this could indeed spell disaster for our public finances. I mean, there are places uh, in different times where they're the place on this planet to be. You know, if you were in Vienna um, before the First World War, um, it was an extraordinary place. Austria was an extraordinary country of great prosperity. You had huge intellectuals in Vienna, whether it was in economics, whether it was in physics, philosophy, psychology, you know, whether it was Freud, Hayek, you know, the names just pour forth. If we went back to late 18th century Scotland, Edinburgh, you know, you had the the Scottish Enlightenment where Edinburgh was the place to be. And of course, really, in the early part of this century, um, um, whether it was the Tony Blair years or indeed the early David Cameron years, um, London had that feeling, that buzz. You know, the Crick Institute Mm, was coming along. All the great scientists were here. uh, Extraordinary open culture. And and there was a feeling, even though we've been through the financial crash of 2008, there was a feeling of sort of cultural optimism that we would bounce back, maybe a bit of lean, mean austerity for a time, but we would bounce back. And one of the really difficult truths of recent years is that really the ultra-rich, the top 1% in our economy, um, and think on measures like income tax, actually pay about 30% of tax. If we are now, as a country, entering a phase where, for example, the number of people claiming non-tax status um, is seriously declining, if the rich start to leave, obviously a lot of um, wealthy Russians, for obvious reasons, have left London in the last year and probably the home counties. But if... London and the UK is no longer the place to be. If the rich start to seriously leave in serious numbers, that could spell, you know, an extraordinary uh, pressure for the Treasury um, and ultimately for the Bank of England. Um, Can you explain the nomdom status? I suspect a lot of people, I mean, there's obviously a great deal of envy in this country about, about the rich and not enough understanding of how much um, they're able to support public finances. But what is the nomdom status? Because, of course, when Rishi Sunak's wife was discovered to be a, a nomdom, there was a lot of you know objections to that as if somehow it was cheating the system. Yeah. So there are wealthy people who bring their money to the United Kingdom, to our financial services sector, you know, to the retail sector and all the rest of it. They, traditionally, they've been allowed to have this non-dom uh, status. It means they're not domiciled necessarily in the UK. It may be that they've got three or four properties around the world. Um, uh, now, ultimately, of course, um, when people say these people don't pay any tax, 
that's not necessarily, not necessarily true. Every time they put petrol uh, into one of their swanky cars, if they uh, you know go out and buy a meal, um, you know if if their cars are moving around with congestion charges, in a sense, you know if you, if you're living and doing the stuff for a period of the year in the UK economy. You are paying tax, and anything they anything they they earn in the UK, they're paying tax on as well. It's just uh, their, uh, yeah, is that right? It, it, exactly. But um, uh, if they keep a major portion of their wealth offshore, then of course they don't pay on that. But I return to the fact: over and above people who are non-dom, if you take the wealthiest one percent in this country, and that could be some landowners, it could be some aristos, some squirarchies, some people who have made it in finance or industry or entrepreneurship. They could be some non-DOM people. The reality is that the top 1% pay a disproportionately huge amount in income tax. And if um, by design or if by accident, our politicians somehow create a, a legal and tax environment that says Britain is no longer competitive. We're no longer a good place for you. And I understand it, you know, for ethical and justice grounds, mm. we want maybe more equality and all those things. But if we do this in a heavy-handed or crass way, and we basically say, go away, um, go to America, you know, go to the Cayman Islands, don't live here. Mm. London, you know, is sort of on the decline and the UK is on the decline and all the rest of it then very quickly um, we could have problems with our tax pay base. And that is at this period where tax is at its highest for 70 years. And to repeat, many of our public services aren't working. And an awful lot of people in our public services, very understandably, given with the, the, the inflation, um, are looking for pay rises. So it's a real alignment of some bad stars in this planetary system. Um, and if we get this wrong, uh, it could be really, really bad news. Yes. And of course, a lot of people who come here as non-dums are actually setting up businesses. So if those businesses don't exist, that's again, you know, tax foregone and growth foregone. I mean, it's very hard to say what you're not getting from businesses that haven't been set up. But quite clearly, to some extent, they are producing wealth, not simply um living here but creating wealth exactly so the question the strategic question is how do you get you know the rich and non-doms uh in particular to um you know to be a part of our society and to do it in in a in, a, in an equitable and fair manner but also avoid the politics and economics of envy in the bad sense and to be blunt with you, inadvertently, because you may be so ethical and so principled, leash the unintended consequence of crashing a major part of the tax base. Um, that is the challenge. And um, I have no indication that Rishi Sunak's Conservatives or Keir Starmer's um, Labour Party or indeed the Lib Dems or the SNP or, or any of them um, are prepared to acknowledge, first of all, the contribution that the top 1% make to the tax base and have got a viable strategy over the next 10 years how to um, how to see our way through this maze for the benefit of all. 
what was it? I can't remember who said it. Was it some, a Frenchman of some sort that the, the art of taxation is is plucking the goose without making it squeal? Exactly. But, but if but, you're actually killing the goose, then you can forget it ever producing anything. Exactly. And if we start to see, as we're starting to, hundreds and potentially thousands of high net worth individuals leave the United Kingdom, um, then then we could be in for a more rocky ride um, than, than, than many of us are experiencing this winter anyway. Well, Tim, let's move on to our third subject. I'm not sure this is going to be any more filled with optimism. Um, most unlike you, because you always try and see the bright side of, of everything. But what are we going to be talking about as our final topic? So we're going to be um, asking the question, is the NHS entering a state of permanent crisis and there was a really interesting piece uh that appeared uh i think in recent days by the former labor party um uh, advisor um he was for a time the research director of labor's biggest think tank which was the fabian society and he wrote a piece on capex uh he said the nhs is an anachronism and britain is waking up to the need for change um, and what he's describing, apparently 30 years ago, he wrote a paper which was called Towards a More Cooperative Society, Ideas on the Future of the British Labour Movement and Independent Healthcare. And what that paper pointed out at the time was that huge numbers of trade unionists historically uh, had various forms of not-for-profit private health cover that um, if you go back before the NHS, most trade unions provided their own trade union, not-for-profit private healthcare schemes or friendly society schemes. And what he's really arguing, this is Stephen Pollard, he's really arguing that we that the, that the NHS is no longer merely a religion in Britain, as pointed out by Nigel Lawson, but it's become a cult. And that rather like Daffy Duck going off the, the edge of a cliff, mm. for a time Daffy is hovering there, the legs are still moving, and then Daffy goes down. I think what Stephen, if I'm going to paint a picture, what Stephen is really arguing is that perhaps the NHS has gone off a cliff. We still think it's at, that Daffy's at the level of the cliff and the legs are still moving, but maybe it's just about to plunge. And what he wants is for the Labour Party and the Conservative Party to boldly look around the world. That does not mean go for US-style privatisation. But look at what they do in France. Look at what they do in Belgium. What do they do in Switzerland? What do they do in mm. Germany? What do they do in Singapore? What have we done historically with parts of that trade union aligned or cooperative or friendly society private healthcare scheme? One of them today is still alive, the Benenden scheme. Um, and, and can't we think anew? And so it's a really interesting plea. Another piece um, that, 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 that struck me, you know, there's a piece in The Guardian um, where they report the NHS doctor's crisis is sort of never-ending and that lots of doctors uh, are quitting and will continue to quit. And then uh, uh, finally, uh, a piece by Alastair Heath um, uh, yesterday. The NH and this is so stark and so shocking the NHS is dead, and it's dragging the rest of the country down with it. Alistair argues that we've got a waiting list of 7.2 million people. 
money won't fix it. There's more doctors and, and clinicians going into it. Maybe politicians of all stripes have historically underinvested in it, but that it's the wrong model. It's not agile. It's not modern. It's overwhelmed. And we're not going to be able to get that bleak number down. But no politician, with the exception of Wes Streeting, who, you know, has, has suggested what no other politician would do, that the NHS perhaps is not working in the way it's supposed to. But no politician will touch it. I mean, the prime minister's scared to admit that he would use private health care, whereas back in 1987, Margaret Thatcher was only too pleased to say, yes, I pay my taxes to the NHS, but I want to be able to see a doctor of my choosing when I can. And like five million people, I use private health care. Um, she pointed out that, well, as with private schools, that those people who are using that system are paying twice. Yeah, no, you, and, no, and, right. and freeing up resources. You're absolutely right. And of course, but we're in a state where the NHS has become what I call the third rail of British politics. Touch it and you die. Yes. Which is why, um, just as with Alan Milburn under Tony Blair's government, who I think had got a lot of these problems mm. and wanted to seriously modernise, but of course, Tony Blair and Alan Milburn were blocked by Gordon Brown. I, I, you know, there is a side of me, Simon, that really wonders if only Nixon can go to China. Um, maybe only Wes Streeting, actually, as a good, solid Labour minister who we know wants to deliver, make sure that we all have access to high quality, uh, efficient and effective healthcare, And he wants um, all doctors, nurses and all health professionals to be paid, you know, well. Maybe only Wes Streeting can tell the truth. Maybe only he can touch the third rail and maybe only he can spark us out of our stupor. Because, again, as a husband, as a dad, as a citizen and as a slightly older gentleman in his late 50s, for the first time in my life, I am seriously afraid of living in a country where whatever happens to me, I just may not get an ambulance. I may not get into a hospital mm. on time. Um, you know, I may not get in time any of the health care I've been paying for over the years. And I find that scary. So I would like someone like a West Streeting and I'd like other politicians of other stripes to be as honest as he is and open. And I wish the national conversation could go back to the future. We yeah. need to revisit the modernization agenda and we need to look around the world and we need to do something different. And I'm sure most politicians in private are saying exactly that, but none of them will touch the third rail. I mean, is it perhaps an opportunity to have an all-party um, look at this? I mean, when was the last time all parties actually cooperated with something? I mean, this is, as you point out, it's essentially it's a national emergency that nobody is doing anything about. Yes, and, and and the shocking thing is, for the first time in the history of the NHS, I think in private, all the politicians I know, all the party political people, mm. you know, that I know, for the first time, it's dawned on them that money, whatever money you put into it, you're not necessarily going to get that any of that money or much of it to the front line to actually benefit patients it will probably end off going into structures and vested interests or whatever. So something is going to have to give. Um, I think the way to do this, I think you're absolutely right. You need, you need all party buy-in. So if we were being sensible, 
we need all the leaders of our major political parties to say that we probably need a royal commission and we need to come up with something that is viable for this country in the 21st century. That's probably some social insurance model like they have on the continent. Yes. Um, there are many ways of doing it. You absolutely need to guarantee health care for those people who cannot mm. afford, you know, you need cast iron 100% safety net. But the idea that the state can do everything every aspect of health and well-being that that sort of mid or early 20th century utopian ideal is problematic now and 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 it may be that it's becoming increasingly counterproductive so we need to have a grown-up national debate and we need each person in the different political tribes you know labor need to stop accusing the tories of privatization the Tory party need to stop accusing the Labour Party of just being simple-minded nationalisers. And we need to have more of an open dialogue around the sort of things mm. that we're streeting would say. I personally would like to see people like Lord Alan Milburn uh, heavily involved in this. Um, I think there are Tories like Ken Clark who would do a good fist of it. But we need agreement. And if we don't, we could end up with eight or nine or 10 million people on waiting lists, we could end up with an ocean of death and illness. And that will bleed through to the economy and it will bleed through mm. to our global... But reputation. it probably is already. There must be so yes. many people on waiting lists who cannot work. If you don't work, you're not generating the tax, which goes to pay for the NHS. So, I mean, we must yes. be at some appalling tipping point pretty close like I, yeah. I mean i agree with you entirely whether it's going to happen until it becomes you know utterly obvious to everybody that the system is broken i don't know though perhaps we're already there tim thank you very much indeed that's uh, tim evans who's professor of business and political economy at middlesex university in london tim will be back with me again in a fortnight's time the bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.